Hi, I'm Meredith. I'm Kristen. And this is The Writer's Story. We're happy to have you here. It is February, and we got our first meaningful snow. And we're in for a little bit more, which is fun. How did you do, Meredith, through that storm? Well, you know, I I got lots of phone calls. My mother called me. um, She lives in the country and said, are you snowed in? And I said, as much as I can be snowed in in town. (laughs) (laughs) I walked to CVS and I bought things, you know, <laughs> it was slippery. Um, but yeah, it was, it was quite a successful snow. It was very light, easy to shovel, and our power didn't go out. So I say, oh, that was good. Thumbs yeah, up. Same. Thumbs up all around. <laughs> same, same. And it was Sunday, right? I mean, during these COVID times, <laughs> what day it is doesn't matter nearly so much. But yeah, I yeah, we had a nice time. We're out, as you know, a little bit out of town. But um, again, COVID-wise, it doesn't change much. I did shovel to enable us to get out if we needed to drive, and we didn't. So it was just really pretty. And I got some good haiku out of it. You know yeah, I, I think it's amazing. Well, it was so startling. I think, I think what I forget, because last year we really didn't have snow at all, um, how transformative snow is. Sort of everything looks different. Yes. You know, I it, love it. Yeah. I yeah, it cleans things up as they say. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind what comes when it all melts. But, uh, uh, it gets a bit messy, but yeah, yeah, it cleans things up. So, it also can be good writing weather. <laughs> now you have been getting close to a manuscript that you're ready to put out to share for how how's that feeling? Where are you with that? I am very close to the end on this revision, and as I was mentioning to you before, I'm using the computer voice to read it aloud to me, and um, and that's I've just caught so much. And you know, as I was mentioning, I hear uh, all the repetition that I do so much better than I read it. Yeah. So when I hear it, I go, "Oh, I've heard that already." (laughs) So I have (laughs) cut out probably about 9,000 words in this edit, which is good because that's all stuff that was just extra um, that didn't need to be there. Um, But the structure was pretty good when I started. I had already done a very, like, a helicopter. You know, I always go, there's different edits. And the first one you need to do is say, are all my scenes in the right place? Is my plot moving the way it needs to? And what's extraneous? Like, if, if there's any scene that you could remove and your book wouldn't fall down, it probably needs to go. Um, But, you know, and that being said, there's other things where you're like, well, this scene actually does have a purpose. The purpose of this scene is to reveal this character or uh, reveal a part of this character or something. So you you can talk yourself into all kinds of stuff. A thriller, not so much. (laughs) So... So yeah, it's it feels good. Um, as I said, I'm definitely having all the emotions that writers do, which is this totally sucks, and I should abandon all hope now. Plus, <laughs> oh, this isn't bad, you know. It seems like it's a decent enough book as I read it. So back and forth with that. Um, well, I know you're writing, and I love it, and I am excited for how it evolves. So. You can tell yourself those silly things about maybe you throw it all out and quit the whole endeavor, but I'm going to 
drag you kicking and screaming back to that keyboard because I love the stories I tell. Well, thank you. And I appreciate the support. It's very, I think revising is just a real challenge because you're trying to figure out what your original intention was. And then you're also trying to decide if what the original intention was, was really a good idea, actually. (laughs) And that's where I am with my novel, actually. I have, you know, generated the first really rough draft. And going back, I am finding a lot of things that I want to do differently. So my main character, I had originally um, imagined as what I now see as a kind of caricature of a really spoiled rich lady. And I don't like her. I don't like that. And there wasn't really anywhere to go. I I felt like having written the book, I could see now how her character can evolve. So instead, I'm I'm recognizing that she's insecure in all of this, and that's making her a whole different kind of character. And, but it also has affected the tone of the whole beginning section that had been rather flippant. I now read, I think, oh, this sounds really flippant, and so it's becoming a little bit more serious, and I. I'm not totally sure that I like that. I was hoping that it would be kind of comedic, but I don't think you can have comedy at the expense of depth of character. Oh, I would rather, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. So it's been an interesting experience coming back and looking at, yeah, how yeah. it had been. Yeah. It feels a little like trying to revise um, someone else's book when it's been a long time away from it. It doesn't feel very familiar. Whatever the original essence of it feels a little lost. Yes. Yeah. And mine did change from over the course of just writing the first draft from the beginning to the end. And I I am, of course, a little bit more inclined to channel the feeling I was developing toward the end of the book um, and allow that to inform the beginning. And again, I think it's going to make what I I think would have felt kind of flippant and a, and a not very sympathetic character at all, give it a little bit more depth and heft and, and maybe you can root for her a little bit more, or at least understand where she might be coming from and want her to, to do better, if you will. Yeah. So I think... And I think some one thing that people don't understand about <clears throat> writers is that they are often working on multiple projects at once. So I know in the course of writing this, you had to probably stop several times in order to deal with your um, things with your your most recent book that's was published this week. So um, I definitely want to sort of talk to you about that because I think it's a really interesting sort of how to balance deadlines and all the um and the different genres that you're writing yes well I just am so grateful that you've invited me to be a guest on this podcast it's an amazing podcast so much about the writer's story and have been eager (laughs) I feel like I should just leave and you should just talk to yourself (laughs) but no that would be rude Um, so I will stay (laughs) I am so I really am grateful genuinely I um have appreciated our get-togethers like this um 
in over the course of the writing of the book that yes was just released this last week on monday i think it was february 1st um the book is non-fiction its title is a most peculiar book the inherent strangeness of the bible and, and i'm sorry people background. can't i hope if they, they'll go click on the link that we have and go look at the cover because i i wish i could show people the cover in the podcast <laughs> isn't it fun it took us a while to get to that cover um but my editor was so um he was he was so generous about letting me weigh in and all the team this is published at from oxford university press they have a trade arm that is for more general readers educated non-specialists um and this book was um a long time coming we bandied about so many different titles and then when it came time to do the cover he allowed um, an image that I had really wanted to inform the title, an original title. I think this title, which he had suggested, is an excellent one, a most peculiar book. I had thought for a long time having the title The Horns of Moses would be really fun because that is one of the very strange things that you encounter in reading the Bible is this reference well not every translation so i can come back to that but anyway there are these images that endure um, michelangelo carved a statue of moses with horns a lot of medieval imagery has moses depicts moses with horns well mo that horned moses made it to the cover so i love that <laughs> yeah and i like the little ox hanging over the bar in the upper right hand corner um, very is, cute as <laughs> a background also with of course a lot of religious iconography associating the four evangelists the the writers of the gospels if you will with um, particular beasts and a man a human being or an angel which have their basis in the book of revelation which has its basis in the book of ezekiel Old Testament. So anyway, there's a long backstory to the imagery on the cover, but I love it. And it's, I find it endearing. And also I got to have a, a horned Moses. So that was, really <laughs> that was a, that was a perk. Well, my, yeah. my mother actually years ago published with Oxford University Press. Yeah. Um, and her specialty is medieval manuscripts. Oh, there you go. She might very well recognize this cover. Yeah, I had forgotten that. Yes, they're a wonderful, um, a wonderful publishing company. Of course, they've been around a long time. They're both um, stateside, uh, so I worked with folks in New York City, and but they also, of course, originated in Oxford, England, at Oxford University, um, and they're of course still there and going strong. But yeah, they do a really nice job, and I really appreciated their openness to writing this. Um, this book that is anchored and based in academic work so as you know i have a separate life as a professor phd religious studies specialty in biblical studies that i have written out of but written as much and actually more really for readers such as yourself meredith who have you know a really wonderful education are curious about a lot of things but haven't studied haven't done in-depth 
biblical Hebrew and Koine Greek and all the biblical studies, archaeology and whatnot. So I'm able to bring some of those things to um, bear on this writing. And yeah, so anyway, I, 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 it's been a nerve wracking week. I'll tell you that, Merida. Um, <laughs> well, your book were... launch, I mean, <clears throat> in normal times, you might have traveled you know, this week, which do you think about that, that's probably more stressful. But, you know, at the same time, I think there's this pressure to um, pretend that we're sort of not in a pandemic when you have something like a launch, like, oh, let's get the numbers and let's, you know, and it's sort of like, uh, hey guys, <laughs> just to fill you in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I know you did some virtual book events, or at least one that I know of. So, so tell me about how that everything's going. Yes. So, um, in short, I'm better today than the last couple of days. I've been a nervous wreck, Meredith. A wreck. I kid you not. I have felt so anxious about this book's release. I often have tons of self-doubt around my writing, and I'm not somebody who goes back and rereads things they've written electively. I mean, I will to read from them for events and so on, but I kind of like to pretend that once it's done, it's it's gone. <laughs> but of course, when it gets published and people actually read it, it makes me very nervous. And in this case, of course, it's based on, uh, it's nonfiction and it's information for people. And I want it to be right and I want it to be good. And so there's always some anxiety about what mistakes might I have made or something like that. But with this one, I realized there's added anxiety because I'm talking about what's weird about the Bible, both but what's weird about the Bible and what's weird in it. And so it, I, I worry that people will feel defensive about this sacred text of theirs that they love so much that I'm going to now poke a bunch of holes in. So my intention with the book has been to not poke a bunch of holes for holes poking sake, but instead to give people the space, no matter what they believe, to reckon with the very real weirdnesses about the Bible and in the Bible and kind of make peace with them um, to maybe make sense of them um, or to at least to make some peace with them. So that's been my goal with the book, but it's been a little nerve wracking. So yes, I gave a talk, um, invited to do a virtual talk for the Harvard Club of New York City. You can imagine this is, these are some very well-educated um, informed and interesting and interested people. And I, I was sorry they had to be that my first audience. There were a lot of them. I think there were over 175 who had signed up. And um, they had to deal with all the kinks and, and crooks and kinks I had to work out of a talk. So they were very generous about it. And, um, and it's always fun, you know, to talk with people, especially to get some feedback or some of the questions, I should say. I love, I love talking, um, doing talks based on questions. It was very surreal to sit in front of my screen um, and not see anybody. Actually, it was by Zoom, but I couldn't see anybody at all. 
and then when I was done to wander back out into the night across the driveway back into the house. <laughs> so it's very, very strange. Not having been in New York at all. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. Oh, wow. The advantage is a lot of those people, they didn't have to be there either. And I guess that the club members are scattered all around, maybe even around the world. But um, it still felt strange. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of those clubs are not sure what to do these days and they're doing their best to sort of be relevant and bring content, but you know. Yeah, and these folks I think are doing a really good job. I know they've had a lot of presenters and a lot of wonderful um, uh, engagement from their community. Um, and I, yeah, I hand it to them. It was, I think they did a wonderful job with my talk. I just wish that I could have ironed out a few of those those wrinkles beforehand. But this is life. And you have to do it in order to do, you know, get the wrinkles out. So that, that makes that makes sense. Um, yeah. So did you, that was your one event this week or did you have another one? I've also been doing some things, um, invited uh, submissions for, of writing. And um, so I've got a new piece up in an online journal called Religion Dispatches, which is a really nice um, kind of all-purpose info about religion. They do a really, really nice job. It was a funny thing, though, because the editor, this all came through my publicist at Oxford, and um, he had asked for a piece. Well, the, the misunderstanding was this that finally what I submitted, he understood to have been an excerpt from the book. So in other words, a section that had already been edited. And I was expecting to get comments back from him for editing this essay. And then I learned that it was up. And then he sent a note to the publicist and said, I thought this was an excerpt. Thank goodness it was clean. So this was a nice compliment that it didn't. He You're a very clean really writer. Editing. <laughs> still, I was, I was kind of hoping I had a little extra guardrail in the editor there. By somebody would come back and say, you know, this doesn't work very well here. Let's change this Let's around. Change this around. Clarify that. So anyway, that's up and. And there will be some other interviews, and I'm excited to do something at the winery where I work occasionally here in town. They've invited me to do a reading thing, and what I decided would be a lot of fun is to do a virtual wine tasting and reading. So I'm going to pair the wines of this vineyard, Chisholm Vineyards, with different sections, <laughs> or maybe it'll be haiku, or maybe excerpts of books from- This sounds like a very merry evening. <laughs> I think it's gonna be really fun. I did um I did a uh, event one time at a local, the Market Street wine shop and they took your book and picked a wine. Oh, that's great. And so then they had your books next to that wine. And do you remember the wine they picked for you? N no. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember if it was red, white, or pink? It was definitely red because I, I, they were they were showing my mysteries, so very dark covers. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it was like smoky and mysterious and dark and I don't know, probably oh, with chocolate. Very fun. Chocolate overtones. I don't know. I'm I'm not a I'm not a. I always find the wine reviews so <laughs> confusing. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I was going to ask if you were going to serve mead or something. <laughs> no, you have to go back for, I mean, it depends on where you're trying to hit. So yeah, wine is good. Wine works in the Bible. There's good, good. Wine gets good play in the Bible. Well, sorry to, to veer away from wine, but I guess I my question for you as someone who hasn't read this particular book um, is what do you feel um do, are you are you feeling like a lot of the strangeness of the Bible comes from having many, many different authors or from having translation on top of translation that changes the words into things that they weren't meant to be? Oh, that's such a great question. And um, it gets right to some of the very stuff this book is about. So one of the things that um, folks notice about the Bible is that if you start digging in a little bit is just what you observed. There are weird things about the Bible and there are weird things in the Bible. And I try to do a bit of both of that. I try to address both of those things. And I actually think that I've only actually come after writing this book to realize that the recognition of what's weird about the Bible is actually a tool for understanding how to make sense of what's weird in the Bible. I had never thought, and I didn't write that in this book, <laughs> but I'd never thought about that until maybe yesterday. I'm like, wait a minute, that's another way to think about this project because what's weird about the Bible include some of the very things you noted. It is not one, it's one, it's not a single book. It's a collection of books, and those books come from different times and places. And even within individual of those books are different writers from different times and places. And this is not something you know we tend to talk about. People tend to talk about the Bible as the word of God, as something that would read clearly through from you know Genesis to Revelation if you're Christian, and this is where we start also bumping into what's weird about the Bible is that there isn't only one Bible. There are Bibles for, you know, Jews have a different Bible, if you will, than Christians. Christians add a New Testament to the books that compose a Jewish Bible. And then they order the books that compose the Jewish Hebrew Bible differently to, to make the ordering that, you, that appears in an Old Testament. And Protestant Christians have a different Bible, substantively different than Roman Catholic and Orthodox Christians. So there are so many weirdnesses about the Bible. And then I can't remember what else you had noted. Oh, then there's the matter of translation. So the Bible um, comes to us, if you're reading in any other language than Biblical Hebrew and Koine Greek, then you're reading a translation. and we all know translation is an act of interpretation. There's no such thing as a one-to-one -one perfectly corresponding translation of anything from any language into another. You have to make choices as a translator about how you, how you approach that endeavor. So, so we have a proliferation of Bible translations. So that's also something, yeah, that's weird about it. And um, yet those are, and then knowing something about as you learn about the Bible, learning about its historical contexts, for instance, some of those situations out of which the Bible comes, 
learning some of the history behind the text, that's the context, but also learning what history the Bible tells and how that differs from the history that's behind it and then the history of it, which is some of what we were just talking about, how it came to be. And then that's talking just history. And then we talk about literature. There are different kinds of literatures within the Bible. So you have poems and you have laws and you have stories. You have letters, you know, like the letters of Paul to the churches that, you, that are part of the New Testament. And you have four different gospels, four different stories, different stories about Jesus of Nazareth. So anyway, you get these, these oddities within the of the text itself of the bible itself my husband keeps saying you have to clarify text sometimes you use text to talk about passages and sometimes you use text to refer to the whole bible and i said yes yeah. <laughs> anyway <laughs> then there are the weird things in the bible so there are things that we that we can uh understand better when we learn more about it and then some things that are just general befuddlements that nobody quite gets. Like so why if, did and I don't want this? I don't want you to you know to pick on the Bible because I know it is something that is dear to your heart and you have and you have worked you know made a whole career out of it. But if you had to pick sort of the most peculiar thing, <laughs> <laughs> well, first, okay, I, I will answer that. But first, I want to say something. I write at the very beginning of this book is that I have a confession to make. And it makes the confession make me really uncomfortable saying out loud or writing out loud as I finally did. And I deleted it a bunch of times. I'd write it and then I'd think, I can't write that. It is that I love the Bible. But that statement gives me the willies as I write because when people say they love the Bible to me, it makes me very uncomfortable because what I hear is them loving it in a kind of literalistic way and then with this facile application into life today which I think is actually a mistreatment of biblical text I what I love about the Bible is that we can do the thing that we are doing right now that is sort of going after it a little bit recognizing what's weird about it because I think it's the weirdnesses it's what's strange about the Bible and in the Bible that issues its its greatest gift to us those things i think are its greatest gift because it issues through them an invitation to be in relationship to with it to engage with it to discuss to argue with it um so anyway that's that what is the most peculiar thing in the bible i don't really know the answer i don't really have an answer to that i have my favorites change but one that did come to mind a moment ago is this really well Moses's horns we could talk about that but the story of um Zipporah Moses's wife doing some strange bloodletting ritual in order to protect Moses from a suddenly murderous God just before that story God had commissioned Moses to go to the Egyptian Pharaoh and demand that the Pharaoh liberate the hebrews from their bondage in israel i mean in egypt you know this is like this is the exodus story this is the monumental moment in the development of the relationship of god and the people and it, this is huge right moses being chosen by god to and 
do this most important thing. And right after that commissioning, we get the story that God wants to kill Moses. And you think, what? It's a total head spinning moment. Why would God want to kill Moses? Moses being Moses in the first place. And then just after God asked him, basically told him he had to do this thing. And Moses to the commissioning said, you know, I don't think I'm really the guy for the job, but God insisted that Moses do it. And then God seeks to kill Moses, which is just head spinning. And it really is bizarre. And we don't know totally what to make of this story. I mean, we, that is biblical scholars, don't totally know what to make of this story. Um, but at any rate, it includes this bizarre Zipporah, his wife, engages in this sort of weird bloodletting ritual that may have to do with a kind of circumcision. Um, it's hard to know whether some of the language is euphemistic or should be taken kind of more literally. Um, but even still, and then their son is involved in some bizarre way. So that's a weird one. Yeah. I mean, I think um, probably something that you're getting at, and my mother is a history professor, and she would often teach the Bible in her Western civilization, or she would. And it was very challenging for some Christians in her class to discuss the Bible as a historical document. And I think that one of the things that you're bringing up is this bizarre bloodletting ritual might have been something that people did during that time that has been lost in those you know the sands of time but yes. because it was a scene in the bible that was then passed down we are getting at this glimpse into another time when someone was after your husband wanted to kill him you had to do this thing you know, I, I don't know. That's right. Well, I, I don't know. It is interesting. It, within the Bible itself, there are references that the biblical narrator makes to things having been the custom, either, you know, these are now the custom to this day, or like they did back then. There's a strange scene in the book of Ruth in which the narrator has to explain what is happening to the narrator's audience within the book of Ruth which is within the book itself, which is so kind of surreal if you are thinking about the Bible as this kind of univocal document that was, you know, handed from God to Charlton Heston, excuse me, Moses, on the top of in a, in a thunderstorm, exactly the way, and then King James brought it to all English speakers. Yes. Yes, yeah. but I like what you're saying about having a relationship to the text because I think we're in a situation right now in the world, and this is not a new situation, but that people um, read something, for instance, on the internet, and then no matter what you say, they're convinced it, it's true. And And there was one that came out this week and it was so mysterious it took me a while to understand that this was something that someone actually believed but that there was something with jewish space lasers i i, oh, I yes I, this was... I, and i don't know the ins and outs of it because I, sometimes i just think it's better to disengage from this but <laughs> on twitter someone said that they lit their um sabbath candles with their jewish space laser <laughs> <laughs> and i thought that's great <laughs> Well, there you go. <laughs> Clearly, it's true. No, I, I just, it, but, but to me, I think what's interesting is that 
even if um, you believe that the Bible is the word of God, there has to be an acknowledgement that God is using people to tell this message and people are inherently flawed (laughs) and set in their time period. So even if you say this is actually, these are the things that God wanted us to know, it's filtering through the time. And so you have to sort of, you know, raise your eyebrow and say, well, did Moses really have horns or was that supposed to indicate something about Moses? Yes. Yes. And one of the things that I do love about the Bible is that it disagrees with itself inside <laughs> of itself. So what are you and supposed so to believe is the truth? <laughs> it models disagreement. It models argument. It models, it, it, I think it demands that we bring our intellect to bear not just take as flat, we say gospel truth, right? Well, the gospels don't agree with each other. There are four of them. It's not, they don't echo one another word for word. So there is within the Bible then this this model of engagement that I think we, um, that we, we, we miss out on, again, I think what may be the Bible's greatest gift or its most um, compelling requirement of us and that is to think for ourselves to learn some learn some about it learn and wow the, the, the learning possible is endless and it's interdisciplinary you've got you know philology the study of language because the languages biblical Hebrew and Koine Greek are dead languages and also the, the forms of biblical Hebrew and Greek, the, anyway, the Hebrew isn't all exactly the same. And there's even some Aramaic in there because the Hebrew Bible, the, the books of the Hebrew Bible evolved over a very long period of time. And so like our English language, we are changing our language over time. So did Hebrew. And so it has different, anyway, the study of language, archaeology comes to bear, literary criticism, you know, learning about how poems work comes to bear, learning about customs, ancient customs, and learning what the landscape was like out of which these texts come, which is not incidental, you know, a, a, a world in which peoples were kind of constantly at war with one another is going to inform text more than a placid, um, you know, perfect Parisian paradise. Um, texts that come out of a Caribbean environment are going to look different than texts that came out of Iceland. Well, and so we shouldn't imagine this would be a whole lot different. But I think, yeah, so one of the things I think about is at the very, very beginning, the Bible uses different different words for God, different names for God. You read a story in which human beings are created male and female simultaneously. And you read a story that suggests that woman and man were sort of created at different times, maybe. Um, so again, the Bible, and then there are other texts that are at the most extreme in disagreement with each other. There are two passages. There is one passage that appears in both Isaiah and Micah that's very people well know well. It's the 
prophecy, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. It's a beautiful text of peace, right? And reconciliation. But then in the prophet Joel, so in the same collection of books here, you have a prophecy telling of a time when they shall beat their plowshares into swords and their pruning hooks into spears. You're like, la, 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 don't tell me that. La, 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 Every time know. has a season. Well, um, but as you were talking, I had this sort of interesting um, thought that when we look at religious stories from cultures that did not write down their stories. So for instance, certain Native American traditions, you know, I'm thinking of ones that involve, you know, you know, the bird and the beginning of time and all that kind of stuff. We assume that because it was a verbal tradition, that those stories were altered through time. And so perhaps the bird was not a literal bird and perhaps, you know, there, there's certain things that we can sort of interpret from there. But I think that there's something that's sort of deceptive about the written text <laughs> that we somehow assume that sort of, you know, that like sort of the, the Ten Commandments written on, you know, the stone tablet, that that somehow has this permanence and this truth to it and that we assume it's uninterrupted, that no one ever came in between and changed human to man or person to man or all these sorts of things that we know that people did do along the way, if you, you know, yes. can read that text. And so that I think that I just, it was very interesting to hear what you're saying because I'm thinking every culture has that. You pass something along and the next generation sort of embellishes it or reinterprets yes. it. Yes, and we have very clear examples of that within the Bible. That is, we can see where um, people have, re have adjusted to new realities in their theology, taken, received their received texts and reworked them in light of new circumstances. I'm thinking here of um, texts within um, the first five books, for instance. We see, and then actually in, in subs, so the, the Torah or the Pentateuch, those first five books um, were quite sure underwent um, not only a kind of weaving together from different sources, but an editing of those over time before they came to the form that we have now. Um, similarly, books that um, tell a history, I'm, I'm thinking of the Hebrew Bible in particular here, we have the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and they purport to tell the story of Israel's um, history from entry into the land that they understood to have been promised to them by God way back with Abraham. Their entry into the land, the rise of um, a monarchy, the the division of that um, nation into two parts, a northern and southern kingdom, and then the fall of each of those to Assyrians and Babylonians, respectively. That um, those books we can see were edited in light of the great tragedies that happened to this people, their defeat, their defeats by 
the Assyrians and by the Babylonians, particularly the defeat by the Babylonians, affected the shape of those books and how they um, thought about the people, how they thought about um, God's relationship to them in history. It's fascinating. But that Babylonian, that moment of the Babylonian conquest of the rump state that had remained Judah, and especially their destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the end of the Davidic monarchy was devastating theologically, because to that point, we, we have texts, texts remain within this collection that say that God made a promise to David that had no conditions on it at all. So it was, it was an absolute promise that God made to David that someone from David's line would always be on the throne in Jerusalem. We also have this promise, if you will, that God would be present to the people Israel in by means of this temple that had been constructed in, in Jerusalem. Well, the Babylonians not only um, defeated the, monarch, the monarchy, so there goes the line of David, so to speak, but this is where the messianic expectations that Jesus fulfills come to pass, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But also they um, destroyed the temple, they desecrated it, and they took away the Ark of the Covenant, enter Indiana Jones, right? <laughs> that Ark of the Covenant was the place where God promised to be specially present. So you get stories like Ezekiel describing an image of how God's sacred holiness left from Jerusalem before that ever could happen. So God was not defeated. Um, God was not desecrated. And, and there is this um, conditional element you get within those stories later. Um, this is to Solomon. God says, basically, this line of which you are a part, the Davidic line, will continue if, if you continue to maintain these laws. The promise to David didn't have any conditions, and that remains. So we have these kind of competing ideas even within those books about that. Boy, that's more than you probably wanted to hear. <laughs> no, but I think it's um, it's really fascinating, and I think that you have done a really wonderful job about not, and I know this from um, from Bible Babble is from not talking down to a reader, but informing them. Um, you know, giving them a lot of backstory and information that they may not have, you know, at their fingertips as just someone, you know, reading. Well, I know how, how um, transforming it was for me. I grew up with the Bible as a word of God in church as a Lutheran Christian. And, um, but learning more about it, I changed so much of <clears throat> the ways that I think about it and really enriched my relationship to it, and I could argue it even enriched my faith and my wonder at God's involvement and 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 God's um, defiance of our efforts to absolutely define God. I love that. That I think the Bible blows apart those kinds of assumptions we may bring 
So I love being able to share some of that with people, knowing that others would also benefit from knowing some of this stuff. It's just, it's hard to get the information anywhere without it being overlaid with a lot of how, what you should believe or what you shouldn't believe or something like that, but just having the information so you can do your own kind of digging around in there. Um, I think is, is it's fun to be able to share some of that with folks. And one of the, one of the main reasons I wrote this book is that I, I get so um, frustrated by watching people use the Bible to beat up other people or otherwise to um, effect a kind of destruction. I think about environmental degradation based as some people have effected it in, you know, the idea of human beings have to, having dominion from, this is from Genesis chapter one. And it's this, this kind of flattening of text and often mistreatment of it. If you knew more about the text, then you would not um, so quickly and I, I argue would not ever be using it to beat up other people or um, to engage in behavior that we know is damaging and destructive. But instead, I think it challenges us to do some of what a lot of really conservative Christians don't seem to think is appropriate, and that is use our brains and learn stuff and then apply your intellect and your internal moral compasses <laughs> to a lot of this stuff. Well, and I feel like you covered sort of that that in your book, God of Earth. Yes, God of Earth, yep, t- talks a lot about, well, that I don't do as, well, there's, of course, some Bible stuff in there because I, that's, yeah, interesting, and it was relevant, but yeah, it's thinking about it as a Christian, you know, how, so that book, I ask, you know, what happens if you imagine the Jesus of Christian theology to actually be um, realized or realizable in the non-human natural world? So if Jesus, you know, and Christians, of course, believe that Jesus is God, co-equal with God, um, a trinity of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God, the Father, Creator, Parent, so if you believe that about Jesus, then surely Jesus is bigger than a guy who walked around the Middle East 2,000 years ago. And Jesus is this, this mediator between heaven and earth uh, who has experienced experiences the world around us in flesh and blood. And um, so what happens if the Jesus of Christian theology, who is also a redeeming uh, element of God, could be still uh, still operating, still alive, still engaged within, still made real within the non-human natural world. So it's a radical eco-theology, radical ecological theology. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> stuff you're sweet to ask (laughs) so um if someone wants to buy the book you're at independent bookstores and everything else is oxford just everything else yep they can get it where books are sold where books are sold excellent yes i do have i revised my website finally it was much overdue 
and there is a page for this book, a most peculiar book. And on each page, there are links where people can click where they can buy them. And I've included in each one of them, of course, Amazon is just, of course, right? But also a book, a link that is an online bookseller, like an Amazon clearinghouse, but that um, that patronizes independent bookstores. It's a mechanism to buy books online, but through independent bookstores. And then I also include a link to the publisher because you can always get a book uh, available through a publisher. But and yeah. do you have some um, events coming up? Um, I am excited about some interviews I'll be doing. Um, one of them is with uh, a woman who was the editor for the Publishers Weekly Religion um, book section, who is um, a journalist. And so I'm not sure where our interview will appear, but I'm excited to talk with her. It's been years since I've I've been in touch with her and I'm excited to talk with her. And I have a couple of other interviews. One I remember off the top of my head is with um, a radio, it's called Interfaith Voices. And they interviewed me when Bible Babble came out, I think, and I love talking with them. And I remember meeting them in their studio in, um, I want to say it was somewhere in the DC area. And that was so much fun when we could actually, you know, get together and <laughs> talk in the same space and not worry the other person was going to kill us with their, with their breath. <laughs> um, good times, good times. <laughs> yeah, those were good times. <laughs> yeah, you could hug someone when you were done. Like, uh, So anyway, that'll be fun. And um, one of our own local, well, you know, Sandy Hausman. Sandy Hausman of, um, so she's a wonderful reporter here in the, greater Charlottesville area who works for um, our public radio stations. She has expressed an interest in doing or having some kind of an interview situation. With Wonderful. Yeah. So I, that would be really fun too. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. We'll yeah. see. And then there's, yeah, the wine, the wine tasting things coming up. And I did just get an invitation I need to follow up on from a fellow who was among the Harvard club audience who is up in New York state and um, is interested in my coming to speak with uh, a couple of different crowds he's got in mind. A Vassar crowd, I think, is one, uh, Bard College, um, some other club clubs that he's associated with that sound really fun and promising. So um, I need to follow up with him because I think it'd be great fun. He's suggesting a time when we might actually be able to do it in person. So if anyone is listening in the Charlottesville area, words and wine are going to be, it's going to be February 25th. That's right. So um, yeah, and that'll be virtual, of course. Um, Chisholm Vineyard. Yeah, that'll be really fun. And I'm sure you'll add more events as you, as you get them on your schedule that people can actually, you know, call in and ask you questions or type in questions so however everything works for the book tour these days <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah oh it's strange times but it also is nice i you know it's nice not to have to drive a long way um, yeah there are ups there are positives and downsides too yeah one of the downsides is to not get to meet people 
I think. Um, yeah. In that sort of meaningful way where you actually get to talk face to face. But I don't miss work travel. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. Um, it's exhausting. So I, I think um, that's that that is a that is a plus. <laughs> well, you are doing some good things with the festival. The book coming up that is next month. I will be doing mostly writers, and so we've already been getting submissions. We critique the first hundred words, um, and um, we're collecting and our submissions. Our and like if they're not in this area, can they submit too? Can Yes, I believe anyone can submit, and that's a really interesting um, notion. If you go to vabook.org, uh, they have a link for where you would submit an email. But we're being sponsored by multiple programs, including a writing center, and um, and so that's exciting. Well, what a cool opportunity. I have been in the audience of this and it is a great way for writers to learn what works and what doesn't and even so i know you can't read every single submission but um, listening to the ways that you all handle treat think about um, critique what you do read is really um, instructive for writers one of the things that I tell students when I teach writing is that one of the ways you can become a much better writer is to become a much better um, critiquer and editor. So um, it's hard sometimes to see the flaws in your own writing, but quite often people see the flaws in other people's writing. <laughs> they say, yeah. oh, this is dragging. Oh, they repeat this word again and again. Um, but by reading something critically and by critically I don't mean by saying oh Kristen you're a terrible writer but by right. saying oh Kristen I think if you said you know you didn't say this word quite as often you know that would that would make this text read a little better for me or something when you return to your own work you will very likely see that you make similar uh, issues you may have similar issues with your own work but it's the act of reading it in someone else's work. Because I think too often we pick up a book like yours and we read it and say, oh, she must have just sat down with her little quill pen <laughs> and this sentence came out and it was exactly like this. And But when I try to write, I flail around and I can't figure out how to start it and all this sort of stuff. There must be something wrong with me. Not understanding that your book goes through multiple revisions you work with an editor, you work with a copy editor, you know, all these sorts of things that go into it. And that That's the great. process, there's a process to, to write of writing and revising. But I think our notion is not only to help people make their writing better, but to encourage them. So yeah. we try to never discourage anybody, e even if we read something and think, oh, <laughs> no agent would ever sign on this 100 words. It needs a lot of work. Um, so to our whole thing, it's always, it's just, it's an unpolished stone. It's not that it should be scrapped completely. So, and we've had great follow up with people who said, oh, I went and revised that. It was really inspiring. I went and revised it. And, you know, thank you for the feedback. So Yes, try not to discourage anybody. Well, I just want to say good luck to you with all your events. Um, and I know they're going to go great. And 
I mean, allow yourself to enjoy. I think, you know, we work on our writing for so long, you know, remember to enjoy the, uh, the process of holding a finished book from all that labor. <laughs> and Thank say, you. I'm still in a bit of a wreck about it. I'm not having a hard time enjoying it. I'm more nervous about the fact that it's out at all, that anyone's reading it. It's gotten it's gotten a lot more attention than I thought it was going to get. And that's all makes me nervous, <laughs> but I appreciate that. And I just thank you so much for, of course, for hosting me here. On our, on our <laughs> Anytime. Podcast. Just but write and publish another there. book and I'll have you back. <laughs> well, I'm so excited when we, for when we interview you. I know that in the future, I hope it won't be too long, but we will, it'll be great whenever it happens. But yeah. I wanted to thank you also for the support that you gave to me as in the course of writing this book. You are in my acknowledgments where oh. I write that your companionship and good humor have eased the book, the effort that a book such as this required of me. So what? I do thank you. It's just, I really appreciate our friendship and the opportunity to talk about books the way that we do and life and snow and all the rest as well and but. i'm so excited to have the opportunity to support you this month um i feel like a lot of what we do on the podcast is support writers that we yes. admire and care very much for and um so i'm really excited that it's your turn <laughs> well, thank you hearts to you hearts 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 to everyone yes. it is almost that's... valentine's day <laughs> so yeah, there you go right. it all fits and um, good luck with everything, and Thanks. I'll talk to you next time. I'm looking forward to it. Bye.